the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, we told you that we wanted to begin a study with much detail that would take us a little bit of time as we looked into some passages verse by verse. I felt led of the Lord to get into the abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount, which in Luke 6 is called the Sermon in the Plain, down in the valley area. And you can see where it began in verse 17, which is where we launched from last week. And we spoke to you about Jesus choosing his apostles, about him praying for the sick and the multitude that wanted to touch him. And we spent a considerable amount of time in verse 20 talking about the poor, what God's attitude and his approach to the poor is, what that looks like, why it's important for us to have the same kind of attitude in knowing that folks are blessed uh, despite their condition sometimes. Scripture says that uh, have I not chosen the poor in this world rich in faith? We talked about that. This evening, I want us to start with verse 22. I'll read, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. And that's as far as I'll read for now, but let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we look into the scriptures this evening, we pray that you give us insight, help us to realize that we are blessed and fortunate and that even in the most difficult times, we can still rejoice and smile. Uh, we are pleased that your son set the example for us when he lived in this world. And we're so grateful that he died on the cross for our sins and you raised him from the dead. So help each one of us as we go through this tonight. Speak clearly through me. Give us all ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Well, verse 22, Jesus is continuing his, his teaching, and he has been explaining in the previous verses that people who are suffering difficult situations now, everything eventually is going to go in reverse when they're in the kingdom of God. And that's why he said the hungry are going to be filled. But he changes direction somewhat in verse 22 when he talks about, about us being blessed, and then he describes the period during which we can consider ourselves blessed. So when you see that word when in verse 22, the fourth word, then that's telling us it's at this point we can consider ourselves blessed when people hate us. That's what Jesus is saying. And when they separate us. Now that phrase separate you or separate us is only utilized one other time in the New Testament. And I'm going to ask you now to turn to Acts chapter 19, where I can show this to you in verse number 9. The Apostle Paul is preaching 
in Ephesus, and because of the unbelief of so many people, he had to pull his disciples out of the synagogue and the places where they were meeting. But Acts chapter 19, look at verse 8. He went into the synagogue, spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he settled down for 90 days, and he argued, he debated, he declared, he announced the word of God. And in verse 9, when divers or different groups of people were hardened, that means they had heard what he had to say, refused to believe, but they dug in their heels. It says, they did not believe, but spake evil of that way before the multitude. In the book of Acts, Christianity used to be called the way, W-A-Y, the way. They were called the people of the way. Now, why would they be called that? Because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. They believed he was the only way to heaven. So in verse 9, amid all of this unbelief, it says he departed from them and separated the disciples. So Paul did it. Paul took his own disciples and separated them from the folks that were causing mischief and all kinds of fighting. So when we come back over here to Luke 6, then we can see that we have the same Greek term being used in verse 22, when they shall separate you. So we can say expel you, some form of expulsion. When you are cast out or put out because of your relationship with Jesus, that's what this is talking about. I think it was the man who was born blind in the Gospel of John. After he was healed, they were really coming down on him fairly hard. And he was, you know, somewhat shy about testifying about how he was healed. But the scripture says that people were afraid to acknowledge they were followers of Jesus lest they get put out of the synagogue. So think of that. Jesus is saying in verse 22 that you're blessed when people expel you or put you aside because of your faith in him and your relationship with him. So don't ever be ashamed of what you believe. And it's, it's, it's something today when you consider the next sentence and says shall reproach you and then the next sentence and shall cast out your name as evil, which is to say destroy your reputation, destroy your reputation. So as a Christian, then Jesus wants his followers to recognize if you're going to align yourself with my beliefs and live the life that I'm teaching you about, he said you can pretty much expect some persecution and some hatred, nevertheless, you're blessed when it comes. Now, of course, we all enjoy blessing. We all like the status of being blessed, but we don't necessarily want to go through what we need to go through in order to enjoy the blessing. You see, persecution. And this is what Jesus was forecasting even at that time, and you can certainly see where it happened in the book of Acts. Well, then the question is, Have we seen in the history of the church where Christians were put out or excluded because of their faith in Jesus? Of course. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. And then even further back than that, we can go back to late antiquity and think about how the Roman 
government persecuted Christians because of their faith in the Lord. They accepted one way, one form of salvation, and that was Jesus. And the Romans persecuted Christians to no end. And we've told you in time past about how some of the Roman government officials, particularly the soldiers, would march Christians to the edge of a cliff and then force them to take a 30 inch step over the side. We've told you stories in the past of how they would take a, a believer or someone and then sew them up in a sack. And in the sack would also be a venomous snake. Then they drop it into a river. This is how they handled Christians. Let's not forget the old night games in the, uh, when they had the Roman races and the, the gladiators and stuff like that, where they would impale a believer upon some post and then daub him with tar and pitch and then light him or her on fire and use her as a light or a candle during the games in the middle of the night. So from, from a historical perspective, going back as far as Nero and others, Christians have suffered greatly. We come over into the medieval period, and I mean, the, the, the whole story of the Protestant Reformation is all about excluding people on the basis of their newfound understanding of justification by faith. Same thing with the English Reformation in, uh, in Great Britain. Or you had John Knox and so many of these other uh, folks who were burned at the stake for their faith in God. And some of them, I think when they had the uh, they had one period where there was more than six or seven hundred preachers that were put out of the, the Anglican church because of their belief in Jesus Christ and justification. So over and over again, this has been something that has continued and it certainly goes on now. We could go on and on about how Christians are treated today in Central American and South American countries, even now by uh, different uh, Roman officials that are over the churches in certain districts. And the same thing with Islam, Hinduism, a lot of persecution because of people's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus, knowing all of this, remember the first three words, blessed are ye. You're blessed. You would wonder, how are you blessed if everybody hates you? Well, you're blessed because of your connection to Jesus. That's why. Because of your connection to Jesus. And, and having said all of that about the persecutions and stuff, I mean, that, that's not to cast uh, some, some uh, negative light or something like that on on, on the Roman church and so many of these others, but it is what it is. I mean, the hatred that comes toward people isn't strictly because of who the people are, but it's because of who they're connected to. Jesus said, if they hate you, it's because they hated me first. There is hostility in the antichrist spirit that is aimed at those who love Jesus. And it's never going to change. There's nothing anybody can do. They can write songs about love and they can put love on the television and they can play it on the radio, love songs and everything like that. But the anger is there because it's a spiritual problem. Light and darkness don't mix at all. That, that's all it is. It's warfare. So verse 22, they'll cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. 
Now, as a Christian, then, one of the most important things that you have going for you is your name. So I think it's in Proverbs where it talks about, you know, a good name is better to be chosen than gold and silver. And a person really is only as good as his or her word. Remember in old times, people would tell of how you could do a handshake and some gentlemen or ladies could come to terms with a deal because you realize this person was good for it and they would honor their word. The scripture says we swear to our hurt. That means if you make a vow, you pay your vow. If you make a promise, you keep your promise to the point it hurts you physically so that you don't end up being being a liar. But in in uh, in, in a world where a person's name today may not mean much, then people aren't going to think too much about them. Yeah. And there are there are people who will destroy your reputation and slander you simply because you're connected to Jesus. So we've had one terrorist after another do wicked things in this world. But you hear hear somebody like Rosie O'Donnell or somebody on when she used to be on the morning show. She talk about some of the greatest terrorists in America were Christians. We'll see. And, and, And the whole point of making a statement like that is to put Christianity and terrorism in the same sentence so that whoever doesn't know much about Christianity, they'll hear that word and think, "Okay, well, Christians are as bad as the people that are blowing up stuff and killing people. And when you hear people today talk about Christianity, they very often mock believers. See, you look at a sitcom or watch some kind of a a deal on um, on television or anything. And if they're mocking anybody, it's going to be a preacher and and it's going to be somebody connected with the church. They're going to make the church member extremely judgmental or they're going to make him as carnal as a sinner, an unbeliever. Look at look at them old shows that used to come on that were funny, but just didn't do anything to help Christianity. Old show with Deacon Fry on Amen. That never did a thing to help Christianity at all because everything about him was was crooked on that show. That that show they had here recently called Soul Man. Here was a man that was supposed to be a preacher and a pastor and the preacher's wife was as carnal as anybody you ever seen on planet Earth or take something like seventh heaven. You know, here was another show, very liberal uh, position for a Christian family. So much of this stuff misrepresents Christianity and it takes the name of Christ and destroys it. And then for you and me personally. There are individuals that will do that for you. Cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. But the Bible says you're blessed. Even when they do that, rejoice and praise God and glorify him. So that's the next verse. It says rejoice in that day. How can we be happy when there's such an attack on Christians? Because this has to do with our reaction. I can't control and you can't control what people say about you or what they say about me, but we can control how we respond to that. Now, you, you surely you've got to know that in, in this contemporary society, Christian students are under attack in the public school. Conservative 
people in churches are under attack because they believe the Bible. Private schools are under attack if they adhere to the word of God. Homeschooling is under attack if you have people that honestly believe the Bible is the word of God. And the attacks are coming from people who do not believe in or subscribe to the same beliefs as all the other ones that I just mentioned. And Jesus says, when all of this happens in that day, rejoice. Well, folks, I'm telling you, for us, that day is now. Now, for other people overseas, that day came hundreds of years ago. But for us, that day is now. It's now. I had a a gentleman call me on the phone just the other day and wanted to pray with me because he had to uh, attend a meeting in Kearney where all these educators around the state were getting together to vote on whether or not to bring all of this transgender stuff into the public education system. And they were going to give this guy two minutes to pray or speak. So he was wanting to know how to handle it. And we just prayed and talked a little bit about that and uh, asked the Lord to give him some wisdom. But I saw a little clip of the, the, the scene from that, that auditorium meeting. And I'm telling you, just raucous, a lot of yelling, a lot of unhappy people. You know why? Because darkness cannot comprehend the light. It's, it's, just, it's not just that people who are unbelievers don't like Christianity in many ways. They don't understand how we can believe what we believe. How can you trust? How can you affirm that one man died on the cross for somebody else's sins and then was raised up on the third day and then went to heaven and he's going to be a judge one day, and there's no other way to the Father but by him. How can an enlightened society accept something so narrow-minded and provincial? See, that's the, that's the thinking. And here's where, why Jesus says in verse 23, Rejoice ye in that day. Now, we don't have to turn there, but I'll give this to you. You remember in the book of Acts where the disciples were preaching the gospel, And then they hauled him before the the Jewish authorities and said, look, don't do that anymore. I'm tired of you bringing the blood of Jesus upon our conscience. Don't do it anymore. And so they did it again and they brought him back and they beat him. See, they beat him. And then afterwards, you know what they did? It said they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, how many people would actually start skipping and leaping and jumping and hollering because they were persecuted in Jesus name? Not a lot of folks. But verse 23, here says rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Oh, my. You've got to dig down deep to be able to smile during times like this and to be able to leap for joy. We usually leap when we're happy. So Jesus is saying, in the midst of these terrible times, get happy. You've got to stir yourself up. Get happy. You cannot have, let your happiness be guided by other people's actions. You have to determine, I'm going to smile, I'm going to rejoice, I'm going to praise God, despite how they treat me. And if you do that, you're on the winning side. And that's where, that's where victory is. To smile in the face of seeming defeat and to smile at the devil, I think that makes people happy. Yeah, 
Yeah, that makes that makes folks happy. Uh, when some some people in Iran were being persecuted and they were trying to shut down their their churches, their underground churches, then they came to them and they told them, they said, now, if you keep meeting in these homes and inviting all of these folks into your living room to talk with them about Jesus, then it's just it's going to be going to be trouble. We'll put you in uh, in, in prison. And, and they said, well, if you put us in prison, then every prison wing will become a church and we'll preach the gospel down there. They said, well, if you if, if, if that's the case, then we'll kill you. Then he said, doesn't matter. I'm looking forward to seeing him anyhow. See, see that that's a that's a mentality you can't defeat. And this is why the church today continues to grow and continues to multiply. It's not multiplying because of people who disbelieve the virgin birth, the sinless life, his atoning death and his resurrection. It's growing because of people who rejoice in the midst of persecution. And if the devil ever could get out here and do what he wants to do in rural America, I promise you, he'd he'd steal a lot of people's joy. See, the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your what? Your strength. So if you're not happy and joyful in God, then you're weak. And if you're weak, you're easy to overcome. So this is why Jesus said rejoice in that day. So you, you have to do that. You have to be willing to praise God and glorify God. And when you get ready for praise and worship and things like that, for your gatherings and Sunday and, and everything, you don't wait for the music to begin for you to get happy. And you don't need a praise team to help you get happy. You rejoice in God because of how wonderful he is. Yeah, that, that's where it begins. The, the scripture says making a joyful noise unto the Lord. And the Bible also talks about us singing psalms in our heart, making melody, melody to the Lord on the inside. So sometimes you have to sing on your own. And carry your own song with you. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, carry your own song. Don't let somebody bring a song that you have to sing. Carry your own. If you're out there by yourself, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. God doesn't care whether it sounds good or or bad. He's just interested in knowing that you care enough to worship him. So rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Now, who would have ever thought that Jesus would be encouraging animation and emotion and physical movement in uh, worship. Because, you know, most of us, when we think of worship, we think of standing still like a Russian soldier. And we anchor our feet to the carpet or the ground and we don't move, you know. But but some people, they like a lot of movement. That's me. You know, I, I like a lot of movement. You you put too much water through a water hose. It's going to flop around, folks. I'm telling you. I mean, God get to move on the inside of you. Something's going to be shaking and jiggling and something like that. It's kind of hard not to not to do that. But but if he says leap for joy then he expects us to be happy, even to dance in his presence. Have you ever danced before the Lord? You see, danced in the presence of God. Have you ever praised the Lord so much that you shouted your hairpins out of your hair? Yeah. <laughs> see, you danced and you sweated and mascara ran. and All of that good stuff. Dancing and praising the king. 
Okay, so verse 23, Luke chapter 6, he says, Behold, your reward is great in heaven. So now I realize that I'm being persecuted on planet Earth, but my rejoicing here is producing something on the other side. So now, now we learn how we can actually build up our reward in heaven. Here's an instance right here. If you ever wanted to know what you can do to increase the amount of inheritance that you're going to have, then look here again. Behold, your reward is great. Not small, but great. And it's, and it's, it's based on your ability to rejoice during troublesome times. Yeah, troublesome times. So here comes the devil, and he's wreaking havoc in your life, just trouble everywhere. And you go to work, you have problems on the job, physical attack, your home now is in need of repair, your car is needing some prayer, and just one thing after another. People pulling on you, they need this from you, they need that from you, and and so... With, with all of that taking place, you feel exhausted. Well, that's a good time to rejoice and praise God. Yeah. Like one, uh, one uh, keyboard player was telling Tiffany or telling uh, somebody about how when he was a little kid growing up in church, he never really understood why when everybody would come to church so tired and they would be singing that song, I'm exhausted. Well, the, the song is, I exalt you. <laughs> But as a little kid, he thought they were saying, I'm exhausted. And so it's kind of like, well, why are these people so tired? Well, if, if, if you're fighting the devil all week, and I watch people in all the different churches when they come through that door. I mean, some, some Christians spiritually, I mean, it's been a rough week. They're bloodied and been battling and. I mean, incessory prayer, everything got to get going, and, that, and you come into the house of God, and now you got to put on your best face and smile and encourage people as you're being encouraged when you feel like sometimes the devil's been kicking you from one side to the other. But yet, this is what Jesus says, in that day, in that moment, at that time, rejoice. See? Rejoice and praise him. So I want a reward in heaven and so I, I think I need to work on this rejoicing uh, part a little bit more, too, even in my own life, to be able to praise God, to be able to glorify him and to magnify him. And, and here is why he says we should rejoice and be concerned about that reward, because in like manner did their fathers unto who? The prophets. Now, if, if Jesus now is telling his disciples I want you to rejoice because the attack on you is not any different than what happened hundreds of years ago with the prophets. Then he's saying to them, I want you to think about the prophets and think about the times in which they lived. Because sometimes if if you know, if you go to looking at difficult situations, people say, well, you know, you're just trying to act like a victim, trying to act like every every bad thing that happens to you is what happened to other people. But the bottom line is, if you're going to walk with Christ, you're going to have to deal with trouble and you're going to have to deal with hatred, as he said. So let's look at a couple of illustrations then 
of where the prophets in the Old Testament had some difficulties. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18. And as you're turning there, I'll set the story up for you. Out of nowhere, a man by the name of Elijah, the Tishbite, appeared in chapter 17. And he basically told the king, you're a wicked man. And because of your wickedness, there's not going to be any rain until I tell it to rain. Now that's, that's a man of God. Look, look Ahab in the face and say something like that to him. And so the, the famine came without any rain. It was so severe that Ahab had a God-fearing man by the name of Obadiah, and he said to him, you've got to run all throughout the land and look for some pasture land and prairie grass and stuff for these livestock or, or the king, me, we're going to lose all that we have. So let's pick it up here in, uh, in <clears throat> verse number three of First Kings 18. Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. That says, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So, so here's where I need to start with the teaching. I don't care how wicked the government, how terrible a politician, God will always have somebody that fears him and believes in him. It wouldn't matter if every mayor and governor and aldermen all across this nation turn wicked. God is still going to have someone like Obadiah, somebody that trusts him. And believes. So verse verse four, for so it was when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. Now, later in another chapter, you'll see where she killed them. That's how she cut them off. She killed them. And that Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them by 50 in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Can you imagine how busy this man had to be? One hundred. Now, at first we thought it was just him that was fearing the Lord Alone, But now we find out there are 100 others that are just like him that love the Lord and they are prophets. And why are they being hidden? Because Jezebel has been killing off their brethren. Why would Jezebel do that? Because they are opposed to Jezebel's religion. She's a woman of control. She's a woman of manipulation. She's a woman of witchcraft. She's a woman of idolatry. Her husband Ahab was very weak and spineless. She controlled the throne by controlling him. And even when he wouldn't listen, he, she still did whatever she wanted to do. And you know, if you go after the prophets of God and kill them off one by one, you don't have any fear of God at all. See, don't have any fear of God at all. Now, I don't I don't doubt that across this earth, the reason you have Christian ministers and Christian people that are murdered is because people don't have a fear of God in their hearts. When that whole um, ISIS thing was taking place years ago over in Iraq and you were hearing stories of them crucifying children and ladies out in the town square. How do you do that if you don't have a fear of God? See, they believed they had a fear of their God, but they didn't have a fear of our God. See, And when they had those YouTube videos coming out where the, the Muslims were taking these Jewish reporters and other people and beheading them on YouTube or setting them on fire, what kind of a mentality allows them to do that? It's a faith 
that releases their conscience and excuses their behavior. And that's why Jezebel could kill the prophets of God, because in her mind, she wasn't doing anything wrong. Nothing at all wrong. And when you see so many people across this nation who were angry and upset that Christians wanted to gather in the midst of a pandemic and all of this kind of stuff. And they were fighting in court to keep people from being able to gather and to worship God. All of that is animated by a spirit, animated by a spirit to keep people from honoring their God. Well, verse five, then Ahab said to Obadiah. Go into the land, to all the fountains of water, that's the wells, into the brooks. Peradventure you find grass to save the horses, so they divided the land between them to pass throughout. Ahab went one way and Obadiah went another by himself. Well, that's what we would have to do. Yeah, if, if, if it ever was so bad where Christians had to hide I mean, it, it'd be trouble around here. As many Christians as there are in America, a lot of them wouldn't hide in the first place because it's such a massive number in America. It's not so bad. But when there's only 50 of you in a village, like in a small village in Egypt, then Christians oftentimes go into hiding. When Tiffany and I went to Turkey years ago and we were in Cappadocia, we went down into the underground cities. And we saw where thousands of Christians lived beneath the earth. Tenth of a mile, quarter of a mile beneath the earth in darkness, except for the little lamps and candles they had in order to preserve themselves. And because they did, when they finally came up above the ground, there was still a faith to multiply in the midst of that region. See, the communists have tried for years to shut the church down over there. But the more they press it down, the more they attack it, the more that thing multiplies. And there are thousands of people coming to Christ every day across China, simply because of the persecution that comes every single day. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah chapter 26. And I want you to see now What happened because one prophet decided to tell the leaders of Israel something they didn't want to hear. And that was that the king of Babylon is going to carry everybody to captivity. And all the false prophets were saying, peace is coming. God is blessing. The yoke is broken. Wonderful things are going to happen. And Jeremiah was telling these folks, look, I'm telling you right now, if anything good happens to you, God hadn't spoken by me. But he said, if this thing falls apart and the king of Babylon show up and he's leading thousands of people over there to Mesopotamia, then you know the word of the Lord has come from my lips. And they did not want to hear what he had to say. So in Jeremiah 26, look at verse eight. Now it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking, all the Lord commanded him to speak to the people that the priests and the prophets and all the people took him saying, thou shalt surely die. So here are priests and so-called prophets. Yeah, these are the religious people, the clergy persons angry because this man is saying something contrary to the government statements, the official doctrines of the government. So how do you think in this nation Preachers feel today when they're persecuted because they don't say things in line 
with what the local officials say. Yeah. When, when the Houston Seven were on trial 10 to 15 years ago because they had a mayor down there who was lesbian and wanted to force all of the city to switch their bathrooms and let the boys go in with the girls and vice versa and so forth. Then the preacher stood up and in their pulpit said, this is wickedness. So they singled out her and the attorney and people working for her. They singled out seven and they made sure they did it in a way that it wouldn't look like it was racial. So, I mean, they, they jumped on a, they targeted a Hispanic. They targeted a black guy. They targeted some Caucasian. They just put this thing out and went after them and, and, and passed a law said, if you're going to preach the gospel in Hebrew, uh, in Houston, and it's going to be contrary to what we believe, you're going to have to submit your sermons in writing beforehand. I'm telling you right now, there's no way I wouldn't submit anything. And, and they definitely have to put me in jail. But what was surprising to me was that the woman was, she had such audacity. See? Why would she do that? Because she believed she had the law and the government on her side to back her up. Now, she eventually had to withdraw from that whole thing. But I mean, she had the forces behind her to make it happen. But you just had too many people in the city that were opposed to it. But what if the people in Houston would have been quiet? See, would have been quiet. So Jeremiah, he's got to contend with these false preachers and these false prophets. And all of them are saying he should surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying this house shall be like Shiloh and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. The priests and the prophets were saying this idolatry is wonderful. Why do you think it's bad that we're out here ser uh, serving and selling everything on the Lord's day? And why does it offend you that people are worshiping other gods? Why would you be angry that the sodomites are in the temple? Why are you upset that there are all of these things going on that's contrary to your personal and private belief? You should believe what you want to believe, and we should believe what we want to believe. Jeremiah wasn't having it. So verse 10, when the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house unto the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate. And the, the, then spake the priests and prophets to the princes and all the people saying, this man is worthy to die. Isn't that what they said about Jesus? Yeah, worthy to die because he's saying something contrary to what the elders of the Jewish nation was saying. For he had prophesied against this city, against this city. Notice now. His, his language and his message was offensive. Why was it offensive? Because it was against someone. And so that this, is, this is the whole thing taking place right now. You have to curb your language, your speech. You have to watch your vernacular because you don't ever want to be seen as someone who is speaking against someone's behavior. Otherwise, if you do, what do they want to do? Shut you down. Yeah, a friend of mine told me just the other day, he said he posted something on Facebook and he said something on there about God or something about people's lifestyle. He said they shut him down for a week. Just turned him off. He said he didn't know what was going on. Well, I'm telling you, 
to be a priest or a prophet, you don't have to have a clergy collar on. Yeah, you, you, you can be, you can be a, a person who's trying to mediate and not even be a preacher. And you certainly can be a false prophet and not be connected to God at all. There's a whole lot of folks that are like that. Well, let's go further. Let's go to Jeremiah 37. Yeah, 37. Here was a man that knew how to stir up a little bit of trouble. So Jeremiah, because the word of God burned in his bones like fire, he couldn't keep his mouth closed. Yeah, that's, and that's usually what happens. If, you, if you're determined to open your mouth, you've got to be determined to deal with what comes with opening your mouth. And Jeremiah was ready. So look at, look at verse uh, 11 here. It came to pass that when the army of the Chaldeans was broken up from Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah went forth out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to separate himself thence in the midst of the people. And when he was in the gate, notice he's in the gate, and it says uh, the captain of the ward was there. His name was Erijah, the son of Shelemiah, and he took Jeremiah the prophet saying, you fall away to the Chaldeans. Then he's basically saying you're on their side. And then Jeremiah said, it's false. I fall not away to the Chaldeans, but he hearkened not to him. So Erijah took Jeremiah, brought him to the princes. The princes were so angry with him, they beat him. And they put him in prison see, because a man was saying something contrary to what they wanted to hear. Now, he had been telling them Babylon is coming. All the false prophets, Hananiah and his group, they were saying it's never going to happen. Now Babylon has come. Their army was there. You just read where they took off because they thought the Egyptians were coming. And so now they haul Jeremiah back before the leaders because his word has come to pass. And they're saying, you're allied with him. That's why they came. You're just a spy. So verse 16, Jeremiah was entered into the dungeon and he was there many days. Now, I love verse 17. So, so this is after some time Zedekiah the king sent, took him out. The king asked him secretly. <laughs> he said, is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, there is. There is. For he said, thou shalt be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. What is he saying? He said, the word I'm giving you right now is the same thing I've been saying. The word didn't change because of my prison sentence. The word of God hasn't changed because I'm in the dungeon and it hasn't changed because you're angry with me. Do you see how important this is? The word of God remains the same regardless of how the circumstances change. Whatever happens with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the final days before the coming of the Lord, the word of God will still be the same. It doesn't matter what they say on television. It doesn't matter what some apostate preacher says in the pulpit. And it doesn't matter what believers are saying around a water fountain when they're just talking and, and, and discussing what they learned in, in church. It's all coming back to this book. The word of the Lord hadn't changed at all. What he said, he is saying what he is saying. He will say tomorrow. Yeah. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruction. And righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 
And this is why I honestly believe they crank out them new translations every year and a half. Crank them out. There's always somebody saying something like this. Well, you know, the English language changes a lot. And because it changes a lot, we got to be able to speak to our our generations in a, in a good way. But I'm telling you right now, if you found somebody who was around during Noah Webster's day and brought him in this room, you'd be able to converse with them just like we can talk tonight. Because the language, though, you may have a whole lot of colloquialisms that change. The standard professional literary English language is the same going back to the 17th century coming right on up here. Grammar may be a little bit different. Pronunciation of words may have changed a little bit. But it's because of this change in the wording of God. This is why we have folks that don't believe what they ought to believe about the scripture. So Jesus says, coming back to Luke 6 now, Jesus says, rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. So it's important to see what happened to the prophets. Paul said in Hebrews 11, some of them in ancient times were sawn asunder. Yeah. Said these folks lived in caves, wandered about, destitute, of whom the world was not worthy. They never, never received the promise that they looked for. But here we are, preaching Christ, loving Jesus, enjoying the word of God, and enjoying one blessing after another. So our, our, our teaching is simply to say this. Don't let people change your countenance in the midst of these troublesome times, but you can keep rejoicing in God. Yeah, a merry heart does good like a medicine. Yeah, he that has a merry heart has a continual feast. Yes. Most of you, I've eaten meals with you before, and I know I've seen some of you at your happiest. Yeah, when you've got a plate full of food. Yes, at your happiest. So think about that. If, if a merry heart is like a continual feast, then people that are happy, they can pass through difficult times. All the people that <clears throat> I've known from underground church in Saudi Arabia, Folks trying to serve God in North Africa and Mauritania, people that have trusted uh, their faith in the Lord in Vietnam under that heavy communist oppression, even in Cambodia. I'm telling you, sometimes it's hard to smile, but God never said it'd be easy, but he did tell you to do it. Rejoice is a verb. That's what it is. It's a verb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching that our Savior gave when he stood down there with those disciples. He laid his hands on hundreds of people and healed them, and then he lifted up his voice and began to tell them, they're blessed if they're hungry, they're blessed if they're poor, and said he's blessed that when they're persecuted and people hate them, they can still rejoice and build up their reward in heaven. So, Father, help each one of us to live close to you, and to continue to rejoice in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen.